0: Hey, friends. My name is Kyle Devlin, and this is Having a Blast. Having a Blast is a pop-punk punk rock and emo podcast, where we're going to be discussing all things punk rock ethos and personal development and the parallels within. We'll also be doing some deep dives on important albums and bands. I'm going to be talking to band members, producers, and a bunch of my friends, and I want to know what makes these people tick. How has being self-motivated moved them in the direction of their goals? We're going to have a lot of fun finding out. So without further ado, let's get into it. friends. What is up? I hope you all are doing amazingly well out there beyond the realm of podcast land and real life. I'm excited because today I am actually revisiting the very first episode where I interviewed my good friend Adam Roberts. It was the first interview I did officially for this podcast and we do a deep dive on the second album, the second full-length album by the legendary Taking Back Sunday, Where You Want to Be. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Adam about this particular record is because we had spent so many hours before this discussing our love of this record. I think it's the favorite Taking Back Sunday album for both of us. We have a special affinity for it. We always talk about Fred's contributions. And I think a lot of people may have missed this one because it was the fourth episode of the podcast I thought why not repurpose it just for full disclosure here I've been doing a bit of a remodel with my dad and Pamela at our house so we've been very very busy on the weekend so I haven't been able to schedule as many interviews as I normally would for this podcast so I figured what better time to repurpose an episode than right now so I hope you guys enjoy it had a lot of fun talking to Adam about this album please enjoy this taking back Sunday where you want to be filled conversation with my good buddy Adam Roberts hello today on having a blast I've got my good friend Adam here hello Adam thank you for doing the show with me hello Kyle we're actually recording now.
1: <laughs> yeah, we did the whole episode twice already. <laughs>
0: this is exciting, okay? Hopefully I don't screw this up. This is the first official show with a, a guest. We're going to talk about, I think, a very special album today uh, for both of us. We're going to discuss the the seminal second album by the band, Taking Back Sunday, Where You Want to Be. And I feel like you and I, we've discussed this album a lot over the years. Can you just tell me, like, where you were? Do you do you remember the first time hearing it? Do you remember the first time experiencing it? And What was that like for you?
1: Yeah, I do. This would have been, I think, 2004 is when it came out, the spring of 2004. So I was uh, a junior in high school. This was uh, somehow, I think, every time Take My Sundays put an album out, it always feels like it's springtime going into summer. It always feels like the anthems for that year for me, and I think partially because I'm relatively the same age as most of the guys in the band. And so when this album came out, they're, they're a couple of years older than me, but uh, I feel like they're always like singing about what I'm also going through. And this album was, so the first album came out uh, like freshman year, I think for me.
0: Yeah, 2002.
1: It was like written for, you know, high school anthems basically. Like, and you could tell the songwriting was just slightly more juvenile, more simplistic, but it was a great album, great catchy album. And I was obsessed with it. You know, at the time, I think for, for people my age, there was people who were really into Taking Back Sunday, and then people who were really into Brand New. I, I I liked both of them quite a bit, but I I aired on Taking Back Sunday, and uh, and then when this album came out, the guitars were just like it was such a mature album that I was like kind kind of taken aback. I mean, that first. The first guitar riff you hear in Set Phasers of the Sun just kind of shook me. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's very police.
1: And uh, going into summer, I think it was my most listened to album. And that was a time when you actually had, you know, to go buy the CD. And I, you know, had just bought a car. And it was just like the one that was always in the CD player while I was driving around. And I always associate this this album to like writing in cars with windows down summertime. You know, warm air th- blowing through your, your hair and uh, everybody kind of singing along to the songs. Um, yeah, so that's where I was when this came out. That's what, what I always recall. I mean, even to this day, like, it's hard for me to hear this album and not think windows down, you know, the the sun setting like an orange starburst and, uh, and just, you know. These songs just rocking and rolling.
0: Yeah, you know, I I forgot that it was actually released in July of 2004. It came out on the 27th, so...
1: Okay, that makes more sense. And I
0: remember remember experiencing the record because we were listening to it a lot on tour. This is the last tour that Game Time did. And I think we were on the East Coast, which was fitting because they're from the East Coast. And it is kind of a breezy, summery record. You know what I mean? Like it's Poppy. I you just mentioned Brand New and I remember you couldn't necessarily talk about Taking Back Sunday back then without mentioning Brand New because of their early 90s hip hop rift with one another. It was like East Coast versus yeah. West Coast almost and they had, you know, the the song with the the same lyrics where they were basically dissing one another for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. But I remember the year before with Brand New releasing Deja. That was such an experimental record for them. And it was a bit of a departure from the first record. So I was kind of expecting Taking Back Sunday to do the same thing. Like I kind of thought they were going to do a more brooding lo-fi rock album because at that point, you know, all the biggest rock bands in the world were like The Strokes and The Hives. And I I was pleasantly surprised with hearing where you want to be just because all of the songs had kind of this catchy nature to it. It was very rock and roll, like lots of guitars, and we'll definitely talk about the guitars and the guitar players specifically, but I just remember thinking, man, these melodies are just so catchy, and they had the big anthemic choruses, and I thought, okay, so Brand New's Going One Way, Taken Back Sunday is definitely just trying to, I guess, further develop that sound because they had a bunch of catchy melodies and anthemic choruses and verses on the first record, too. but for whatever reason, this album, in particular, when we when we would listen to the whole thing, I just felt like it was a more cohesive album front to back. every song was was thoughtful and and the melodies were well crafted and, and the choruses really hit home and it felt like every song could have been like a noteworthy single on college radio. Yeah, just great record. Um, I think it hit me harder than the first album. Do you remember how you felt after hearing Tell All Your Friends for the first time?
1: Yeah, cuz I was like I'm trying, uh, 2001, is that right?
0: 2002 is when Tell All Your Friends came out.
1: I mean, yeah, I was a influential teenager and that movie was like written by late teenagers and it just felt like uh it felt like it was you know I was already into like punk and stuff but this was really my gateway into like pop punk you know as much as I listened to like blink 182 at the time uh there wasn't that that song like that something about that like the dynamic the the two two singers the anthems were just different than like everything else that was out at that time so i i really just connected to tell your friends but i think i really fell in love with Taking Back Sunday on this album where you want to be
0: do you f- feel that where you want to be overall is a record that you enjoy more that you revisit more these days
1: i think so i just started kind of going back into some of these older albums and rather than just listening to whatever might pop up on a playlist of mine or something like that to actually listen front to back on the albums and this one and louder now i gave a revisit to right before we did this and they almost they feel so similar Uh, you know louder now almost feels like the b-sides to this in a lot of ways and it's a, a little bit messier because it doesn't feel as complete as this but this is just so you know it's Around forty minutes, it's nonstop. It feels like a story almost um, is being told, and how cohesive it is, and and the ups and the downs that that all. It, it almost feels weird to listen to it out of order, um, but it, but it's yeah. I mean, the, this album it, it holds up when when sometimes the I think a revisit you you might find holes or ah this song's a little cringeworthy, but this one still like the energy still works. The the song the the lyrics still absolutely work, but the guitars sound timeless. Especially, in, uh, I, think, I think, in this time frame, you were mentioning some of the other popular music. You know, just looking at the top albums that year, You have stuff like, you know, Arcade Fire coming out with Funeral. And then you have, you know, Hot Fuss with the Killers. And Antics by Interpol and Franz Fernand's first album. And Modest Mouse, you know, really changing into, like, the, the popular indie rock with Good News. The birthing of, like, indie indie music, that, like Explosion. And there's, they put out this album, which is just, I guess, that same year, we had Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge, but even that felt more like a, the poppier side, whereas this is just like a, a pure rock album.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, in terms of like indie rock, it ended up being one of the highest selling indie, meaning independent record label releases of all time. It sold 163,000 copies in its first week. And I remember that being such a noteworthy deal at the time because it was like independent labels were just kind of blowing up. You had Drive Through that was doing really well. They were continu- continuing yeah. to do really well in 2004. And then Victory followed suit, you know, like with the success of Thursday and them selling just a ton of records. And then on to a band like Taken Back Sunday. And I don't, I don't know if you remember, but I remember going to shows and you couldn't walk outside the show without running into like a street team member for Victory. And they were giving out those free compilations. And they had all of you know, the singles, I, I say that in air quotes, but the singles that they were really pumping hard for bands like Taking Back Sunday and Hawthorne Heights and all that stuff. And I think that really just created all that hype and people just knew who these bands were even if it was still a subset of the population and just like a niche underneath the radar. Yeah, I I think about those big records and I remember at the time too, a lot of bands were talking about how they wanted to feel timeless they wanted to create timeless records that was kind of like almost like a buzzword that you heard a lot and I think that's actually probably a good word. Back then I I was kind of sick of hearing it, but I think bands wanted to create these perennial sellers, these albums that would stand the test of time and that would go on to become classics in their own right. And that was probably a lot of the bands just kind of believing their own hype a little bit, you know, but you could definitely smell it in the water. There was something burgeoning around that like early aught with, you know, emo bands, quote unquote emo, but more like Popier punk bands like Fall Out Boy taking it off where you want to be I feel like that was like the first of those really huge underground albums to just kind of explode
1: yeah it's funny you talk about street teams because uh, well I haven't thought about those two words together in a very long time but I was a part of the street team
0: <laughs> were you ever on a street team
1: yeah I was on the Warner Brothers for Glassjaw oh yeah uh, w- w- for Worship and Tribute um,
0: so around that 2002 2003 mark
1: yeah but it was like we all go to shows, and there's always the guy or girl standing outside handing us like flyers for what's coming up. But street teams were so much more engaging. And I think that that's probably how Taking Back Sunday really took off um, is having somebody that was so on the ground and getting like, you know, demos out there and, and like, you know, sit one side CDs that were just like copied or like links to their MySpace, you know, at the time. And, and you think about just. Yeah how popular and how big without having like a lot of radio singles, how big taking back Sunday was then and still is today. Like their audience is just maintained and, and it's pretty fascinating. I think when you look at their, their work as a whole, but particularly this album, I think this is the one that for me connected to the most. And I think was at the probably the peak of, pop punk uh, and emo music at 2004, 2005 era. And this was definitely their peak, I think for this album and their popularity couldn't be any bigger. And they were, you know, just exploding with, with new, new listeners and fo- fellowship. And I think that's stayed with them because these songs are so resonant that they, they, they not only are, you know, we can look at them in a nostalgic way and, and remember, listen to them when we were like 17 or 18, but they, they transport you, I think to a different time with their lyrics of you know, young heartbreaks and you know being on 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 the road with the windows down. Like I said, like this just transports me to literally to that summer I guess of 2004 when I had my first car. When I was gonna be uh, you know in senior year, it it was just like a time and a place, and it continues to grow with me as I get older. It is just it's just so impressive. I think on all fronts, but the guitars. So this album is just all about the guitars for me.
0: Yeah, dude. Uh, Fred Mascherino, what a what a contribution, right? And I mean, we haven't even talked about the, the fact that he had such big shoes to fill coming in for John Nolan. He had to do double duty. He had to play guitar. He had to write songs, so he really had triple duty and he had to sing. So he had to fill these shoes these monumental shoes that even though they had only been a band at that point for a few years and gained popularity with tell all your friends it was still fairly iconic even at that point even you know by the end of 2003 tell all your friends had been out for almost two years and all these people had been just singing all of these lines all of these iconic emo lyrics on tell all your friends and then he had to basically come in complete new person fill this role and then you know right after they they did a co-headlining run with saves the day and then immediately they went in to do this album they immediately went up to new jersey with lou giordano the producer to start writing and doing pre-production for this record so i mean true testament to fred and his ability to just fill that role right then and there. And then the same thing with Matt Rubano, the bass player. He had to come in for Sean Cooper after John and Sean both decided to part ways from the band. It's probably good that they got somebody who was classically trained or two people that were classically trained on their instruments. I didn't realize it, but they both went to a specialty jazz school. So they were like true and true skilled classic musicians, classically trained. I just think that's really impressive. I mean, I would imagine they were feeling some pressure around that time, you know, especially considering Mm -hmm. how many albums Tell All Your Friends had sold. I don't know if you remember, but I remember around that time, 96.5, they were playing Tell All Your Friends songs, playing Q without the E on regular rotation. And that was sort of interesting too, because, you know, everybody that knew that Taking Back Sunday just happened to be on an independent label. That was probably a little jarring to hear this tinier band that, maybe five years before that, would have never reached that level of success of being played regularly on the radio. I remember hearing uh, Fat Mike talk about how when he would release Fat comps, it's like those compilations would make bands. You know, we were talking about the free samplers Mm -hmm. and everything. He knew that those bands, the only way they were going to get people out to the shows is if he put them on his comp for Fat Records and Epitaph as well. It's just crazy how those independent bands, that was their means of blowing up.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think them switching two key members was, and not only pulling it off, but exceeding what they did in that first album with you know three of the five members staying the same. But the guitar work, I think, that Fred and, and we can't discount how much I think Fred brings to the to writing on this album because yeah, the guy knows how to write a pop song and knows how to really craft interesting lyrics. I think and and really made Adam a better songwriter. Oh yeah, um, and and. Changed the way Adam writes. Um, and you could see when when Fred leaves the band just how how different Adam's writing is and how he kind of has to refigure himself out. But here, th- their energy just works so flawlessly.
0: Right. They had chemistry, you know, like right out of the gate. Yeah. Fred was in a band and had been in a band for several years before that. He was in a band called Breaking Pangea. I remember listening to their EP back in the day. They were gaining steam too, but they were playing tiny clubs, nothing even remotely close to the levels that he would then be playing with Taking Back Sunday. I watched an interview with him the other day just in preparation for this and he said his first show with Taking Back Sunday was in front of 20,000 people. <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay, that's a big, that's a paradigm shift, you know, from sleeping on people's floors to playing for 20,000 yeah. people.
1: But it's, but I think it works so well. Like, he, I guess he just was fearless when he joined the band and, I mean, your expectations are just out of control. Like, I mean, John's voice in that first album and the, their chemistry of them going back and forth to dual vocal vocalist it was like how is this going to work when John and Adam had such good chemistry in the first one and John contributed so much to the songwriting and then it's like well actually it could get better and maybe more interesting because while John's a terrific vocalist I think uh, what Fred does here is just so so much so much more fascinating I think to, to the lyrics that they're writing here and really takes you know John was mostly just screaming in that first album whereas Fred is a true second vocalist in this album you know he's he's Prominently singing the choruses and the the second lines of just about every song on here. Yeah,
0: all the callbacks.
1: Seeing them live. Yeah, and seeing them live, and and I think that's really where their their live shows really evolved. And this album really, I think this album really defines who Taking Back Sunday is and what they wanted to become more so than Tell All Your Friends.
0: Yeah, it's so funny too because when you hear Adam talk about Tell All Your Friends, he says it's almost unlistenable at this point because he doesn't like the way his voice sounds. He thinks his voice sounds kind of whiny and nasally. That's probably some of the charm of the album though. When The fact that it's not perfect, you could tell they weren't like auto-tuning and pitch correcting literally every one of his notes. And there's still a lot of character on where you want to be, but it's just a little bit more refined, I think. And to speak to your point about Fred, you know, joining the band and being such a prominent singer, it's almost like they had two lead singers at that point. Two good lead singers, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I I, I know we've talked about this before. I actually really enjoyed the color Fred and Terrible Things afterwards where where Fred sang lead. I really enjoy a lot of those songs and especially the, the Terrible Things record. I think that's a really great record, front to back. I think he was good at helping Adam craft poppy and catchy melodies. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the the lyrics, too. I was kind of looking over the lyrics of some of the songs, and I think some of those lines, we just kind of, we sing to ourselves all the time, and we kind of know, especially on where you want to be, and tell all your friends, to be fair. Like, they they, all, they both have iconic lyrics. I kind of wanted to get your take on this. I feel like in tell all your friends, the words are a little bit more specific. They're a little bit more, like, storytelling Whereas where you want to be, the lyrics are still very smart and catchy, but it's almost like they're capturing feelings more. There's a little bit more of ambiguousness to it. There's a little bit more... Like left up to interpretation to the listener, whereas tell your friends is just very like specific and storytelling.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. I think there is a much more like open-ended poeticness to this. And just I've never really read these lyrics, so just looking through them now as I was listening to some of these songs. Well, it's impossible to not hear the two different voices, but how they're written is so interesting. I think because they are written from two people's perspectives a lot of the times, or or like there is a an ambiguous conversation happening around these really catchy choruses
0: yeah it's almost like two people talking to one another
1: yeah i, I don't know yeah
0: just really cool yeah. and i think they were the you know they were really the the pioneers of that putting in one vocal line and then having a callback separate vocal line right after that and you almost hear pop punk bands doing that yeah sort of like just as a trick now it's like a it's like a technique that they all use
1: yeah i, I think it's it's interesting. I'm just reading these lyrics right now and it's, it is kind of blowing my mind just how they're written and how I've never, as, as, as I know every lyric in these, I guess it's just different to read them like a book. There's
0: there's one song in particular, I don't know if you saw this one, but on uh, A Decade Under the Influence, I don't know if you noticed this, but at the, yeah. I never knew this, but at the end, you know how he's he's, he's almost like he, he's talking to somebody else. It seems as though he's talking to a female and he says uh, something about like the worst uh, part of me is in you. And then at the end, in parentheses, in the words, it says, I am you. So it's almost like it turns it on its head. He's talking to himself almost. Yeah. Or he's projecting.
1: Yeah, that that is interesting. I've, I don't ever think I've heard that. It's, it must just be so mixed. I mean, it's the climax, that very, very epic anthem, uh, and i think you get so uh, so uh caught up in singing that part yeah. uh because it's just like i've got a bad feeling about this like over and over and over and over
0: and you think adam's just singing in you
1: yeah but you
0: know i i looked online and it said i am you and i was like oh that's crazy
1: yeah that's wild that's
0: just classic projection you know
1: i think it, i mean it works though like it's it is it is it is fascinating to, to look at some of these lyrics because they're they're just a lot different and in the context of just reading them they are uh they are so abstract and so much more like, I mean, they're not as wordy as someone like Alkaline Trio, but they're they're more in that vein compared to the first album, which is uh, just shocking. But but again, I think this is a lot that Fred's, you know, doing. I think because this is kind of how Adam's writing changes uh, this and louder now, and it kind of stays like this up till now. Yeah, where you know he's 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 changing a little bit in the last. Two albums, I think, just because him and John are, are a little bit different writers, but and they're trying to go more of a classic, I think, um, Springsteen kind of approach to their songwriting now. But like, these like middle albums is yeah.
0: I think John Nolan is a bit more of a storyteller too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, because like you listen to you listen to Straylight Run, and it's just every song's a story.
1: Yeah, especially that first Straylight Run album. Uh, it's just so it's it's interesting because you know they had their their conflicts and John and Sean left and made that album. Um, and it, it's it's similar, I guess, while being totally different than this album, but it's similar, like, the evolution. And I'm, I, it'd be interesting to see what they would have done with John and Sean. I think it was to everybody's benefit that Fred and uh, Matt came in to, for these two albums. Yeah. Or or may, may have ended up being, like, straight around.
0: And I know we've talked about this, too, the prospect of them having Fred come back. Mm-hmm like with their current lineup. Oh, really? I just feel like that would be amazing. Well, I, d- I don't think it's going to happen, but just how amazing would it be if it did happen, you know? Because unfortunately, they parted ways with Eddie, the original guitar player, the guy that started the band. And so they've got that spot open. I know they have a touring member that's go- that's been playing with them for a while, including when they were with Eddie. But it's like, why not just bring Fred back, you know? Yeah. Like what's stopping them from having him do that? Then he gets to sing all of the Fred songs. You know, nobody's stepping on anybody's toes. I'm sure they're making a decent amount of money at some of these festivals that they play. They play Riot Fest every other year, or every year it seems. So I don't know. I just, I feel like... It would be such a cool thing to see not only John Nolan up there, their current lineup, but also with Fred on the opposite side of the stage and him singing all, all of the Where You Want to Be callbacks and the Louder Now callbacks. I don't know. I'd, I'd pay money to see that for sure, but well, I think that don't know if it'll happen.
1: They made up pretty publicly right uh john and fred and well uh adam and fred
0: yeah i don't think there's any animosity i've i've heard him talk you know he's been doing a lot of interviews lately a lot of podcasts and he's he's got his own youtube channel he's mentioned that they've all kind of made amends and that they're all cool with one another i mean they're all i would imagine i know fred he's in his mid-40s and everybody else is probably right there behind him in their early 40s after a while it's like let's let bygones be bygones and just be buds again you know yeah no reason to walk around with enemies.
1: Well, and Fred is just so, so interesting. Like all of his side projects have been so great. He's just because this album was so successful and it was such a inspiration to other bands around them, and, and the touring was so great. And same thing with Ladder Now. You can tell that Adam and Fred because they they were just. Young guys letting this massive success go to their heads, and they unfortunately couldn't handle it together. You know, I, I would love to see another uh, Fred and Al, Adam, and you know, even John. Like, I'd love to see those three guys like putting together, even if it's just songwriting and producing on that side of things. Just because Fred is, for people who haven't listened to the, the terrible things or the color Fred, uh, it is just absolutely, I think, fascinating to see to, to see him evolve. And, and uh, did you know that he he played with the Lemonheads for a while? Fred did played in what? He played with the Lemonheads. He played bass. For, oh yeah, 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 For a while, I, yeah, I did hear that. He went on tour with them, right? Yeah, he played uh, on like their anniversary tour, some, somewhere in the early two thousands.
0: That's so cool. You know, it's funny. I've been actually listening to them quite a bit lately.
1: They're they're great, but but it's just yeah. And maybe maybe it makes sense that he comes on as a producer or something because he does. A lot of his own producing, and I, I think
0: I think he works with bands. I think he does a little bit of co-writing. It's probably on a very like project by project basis. I don't think he advertises that stuff. I actually found out the other day I was listening to a podcast with Chris Caraba from Dashboard, and he said he just happened to mention he's like a, I he was in a motorcycle accident and he broke both of his shoulders, and so he's teaching himself how to play guitar again. Oh, and he wow. said the other day that he's taking guitar lessons from Fred. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, "That's badass." Fred's a, an amazing guitar player. Like, that's really smart that he commissioned him to teach him, you know, via Zoom. Because he said he they don't live in the same city, and they're just doing it remotely right now. But he's basically teaching himself over again how to play guitar, and he's he's using the services of Fred because he even said, "Fred Mascherino, best guitar player I know."
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, he's technically just incredible, uh, and he, he just. You know he's he's he feels a little old school in in his stylings and, and he I think he every time I've seen him he plays a Gibson so I don't know if he's still doing that but yeah
0: he he played a he pl- I think he played a Gibson SG you're right about that for the majority of this record and louder now I think that's part of his sound is the SG which has a little bit more of like that sort of Brit rock mm-hmm. vibe when I hear him play it's usually a little bit dirtier martial distortion less kind of like clean Mesa sounding distortion I don't know if you were if you caught this when you went back and listened to the whole album, but there's so many cool little picking pull off lead lines on this record. I'm trying to think of the name of the song. I think it might be New American Classic or no, I'm sorry. It's, it's, I think it's a little devotional. There's like that intro lead line. Yeah. So he's doing a lot of pull offs on and a lot of open notes that are high, but it's really catchy. And it kind of weaves in and out of the the rhythmic guitar part.
1: Yeah, would you have a favorite song in the album? One that's just like your go-to? Um, that's dude. That's it's
0: kind of tough because I feel like the front end of this album is just so stacked. I really love Bonus Smosh Part Two. That song always really resonated with me. I just think the verses are really catchy, the wordplay, the repetition where he's like, can't you, can't you feel it rolling off your, it's very poetic and it's very, there's a lot of alliteration there. So it's very easily, it, it gets caught in your head pretty quick because it's so catchy. And it's got that big anthemic chorus. Mm -hmm. Apparently that riff at the very beginning, that opening guitar riff, was the first thing that they worked on when they first started writing songs. This is the first song they wrote as a band with a new lineup. And that was a contribution by Eddie, I guess. I always assumed that Fred was like writing the majority of the riffs on this record. But I guess Eddie came with a lot of these kind of rhythmic ideas or rhythm ideas. And then I'm sure Fred, that act is like a songwriting prompt that he can just sort of respond to. And he seems like a pretty creative guy. Like he can just come up with riffs right on the spot.
1: I think mine, uh, my number one on here is, man.
0: Yeah, what's your favorite song? It's a,
1: it's a tough one because the album is so, so fucking good. I mean, it is. Yeah. Oh man. And it's just so, man. It's tough. Uh, I'm looking through them right now. I'm like, is that my favorite? No. Nah.
0: Every song's just one giant chorus. Yeah. You know? It's like even the verses are choruses.
1: I actually think "Slow Dance on the Inside" might be my favorite. It's one that gr- continues to grow more and more, and it's a song that's like never been my favorite because it's like it's a little more ballady. It's it, but it's just it's a perfect way to end it's it. So good, an album too. But it, it's it might be my favorite. I think for a long time the Union was or I Am Fred Astaire. Like those two were just like right there for most of my my listens. But "Slow Dance on the Inside" has been. Shooting up quite quick to the top for me.
0: Epic closer. I love the gang vocals at the end. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, very anthemic, very easy to sing. Yeah, and it's just uh,
1: it like fades out. This album
0: doesn't really overstay its welcome, you know? Yeah. Like it's just, it. it's 11 songs. It's very succinct. You could tell like they were, they were trying to be very punchy with the album. They didn't want to like meander through the songs or anything. And it's like you said, it's 40 minutes long, but it doesn't feel like it's 40 minutes long. Like it's a really breezy, easy listen. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing now that there's actually another, there was a Japanese bonus track called Your Own Disaster. Have you heard this? Yeah. I think it's on... I don't think I've heard that before. Oh,
1: really? Um, I think it's on... Put it on... There's an EP... Well, it's on the vinyl, I think, because I have the vinyl. Oh, cool. I'm trying to remember no it's on the anniversary album that's what i have it's like a it was a record store day like acoustic album i'll
0: have to youtube that stuff man
1: i think it's i think it's on spotify it's 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 good it's it's uh i don't think i've ever i've only heard an acoustic one so maybe it is somewhere else but i will definitely be checking that out
0: it's good it apparently was a demo for tell all your friends
1: interesting yeah, it's They
0: were, they did a re-recorded version for the Japanese bonus track on Where You Want to Be. Also, why why does Japan always get the the cool bonus tracks <laughs> on albums?
1: I don't know. That's a that's a terrific question uh that we should take to the Japanese for and demand an answer. <laughs>
0: I, it's funny because, like, when my band, The American Life, we were signed in Japan, and I remember they wanted us to release our record over there, and we were like, cool, we've already released it. And they go, no, we need more songs. Like, you have to give us more songs. And we were like, okay, we'll record some. <laughs> we were like, we didn't have any. But for some reason, they were, they were dead set on releasing our record with more songs.
1: That's, that's pretty funny. I wonder if that's like, I wonder if there's like people who, who will buy it in America because of that like try to buy, spend more money on an import, like uh, retailers and stuff. Maybe it has something to do with that. Like they always want to have the the upper
0: hand on, on uh, B-sides and imports and things because then they can charge a lot of money for it or something. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so we got to talk about the music videos. Have you seen the music videos for the singles? I
1: think I've seen all of them. I know I've seen A Decade Under the Influence.
0: That was actually my first, yeah, A Decade Under the Influence. We saw that on MTV two, just happened to be on tour, game time was, and I remember we were sitting in somebody's basement and they had MTV two on in the background. And I remember looking at the TV and seeing the new Taking Back Sunday single, which was a decade under under the influence. And that video is the one where it's one camera and it's just spinning. Mm -hmm. throughout the whole thing going from member to member they're like in a practice area where they're playing this song it's almost like a david fincher music video it just spins the whole time
1: i remember that first that first one pretty well
0: yeah it's a cool video it's kind of like fitting of the song the song's kind of aggressive and the video i think captures that energy well
1: so decade of Influence, I remember. I don't, and Set Phasers to Sun, but I don't, I don't think I've ever seen the, the, this photograph as proof.
0: And that one in particular was uh, directed by Tom DeLonge. Oh, really? Yeah, so he directed that video, and I think he, being the smart, creative guy that he is, the eccentric person that he is, I think he recognized how popular Taken Back Sunday was and how popular they were going to be. Because mm-hmm. they actually played some shows with Blink and Cypress Hill right after the release of Where You Want to Be. But he directed that video. This photograph is proof. And it's a pretty cool video. I mean, it's got a lot of like split screen stuff in it.
1: Oh, I do remember this.
0: It definitely looks like a Victory Records music video. Because I remember during that time, like you go back and watch some of the early Victory videos, and they were all, they all looked like they were in the same white warehouse with the same white background. Yeah. I remember Thursday had a video like that.
1: Pretty funny just seeing how young everybody is and how like. 2004 everybody is
0: oh yeah they're all little babies
1: yeah it's it's pretty funny to to see everybody here but yeah that that white warehouse was in like every video in that time frame which is probably just like i'm guessing their their actual studio in like brooklyn or something
0: probably yeah definitely at east coast
1: yeah that's funny i didn't know tom directed that
0: did you see taken back sunday when they came through the first time in kansas city at the el Torian? i
1: think so i know i saw them th- The second time, which I think was at the Beaumont Club,
0: yeah. Who they play with?
1: Oh man! So that would have been, I think, for I want to say that was for this tour. I want to say that was the saves that it was saves the day and and taking back Sunday.
0: Okay, so that was two thousand three. That was the first time I saw him. I didn't see them at Alturion. It's kind of funny because I had a lot of friends that went. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's where Adam fell off the stage and like broke his leg or something, or he hurt himself.
1: I remember, uh, yeah, because didn't he like break a, bust a hip or something?
0: <laughs> like He did. Well, yeah, I don't know. Like he he a tree fell on him. He's fine now, which is good. But a tree fell on him maybe a decade ago. Do you remember when that happened? Yeah. Or in this decade. But I, I vaguely remember people telling me that he hurt himself on the stage at El Torreon. And I think we were on tour or something. I had friends that were at the show. But I remember that was the first time I heard about him swinging the mic around his neck. Mm. Where he'd like, you know, throw it out and spin it around. And that was kind of his signature frontman move.
1: I'm trying to see if I can find that show I went to. But yeah, it was... I remember going to this concert because I, I was like I said this that time frame I would have been like a freshman sophomore somewhere in that time frame so you know somebody's mom had to take us and uh, I remember getting dropped off at the Belmont Club and going inside and watching it I want to say there was somebody else there but it was a good show I mean it was the first time yeah he was swinging mics and it was wild it was just again to see that as like one of my like first high school experiences with like all just friends with no you know parents and not just like a local show in like a church <laughs> it was. Yeah, very adult feeling
0: i remember saves the day being very good that night yeah they sounded great they headlined and i was a big fan of stay what you are and i think that's what they were touring on at that point
1: i think i was too too horny for uh taking sunday because that was the first time i was seeing them so I, I don't know if i was that thrilled about saves the day of course i i like them now but i think at the time i was just like get off the stage idiots <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh,
0: it's funny because I think at that point they were probably it was a co-headlining tour but taking back sunday may have been the bigger band at that point y- yeah crazy to think that saves the day was opening for for green day and blink 182 the the summer before on the pop disaster tour
1: yeah that's pretty wild actually to to, to think I mean that, that was the first time I saw taking back sunday and I think I've seen them they're one of the bands I've seen the most I, I would venture to guess I've seen them at least 10 times
0: I feel like I've seen them several times with you too always fun times
1: I'll always go see them because they they put on a good show and they they uh, they're all about the crowds, man. Absolutely, man.
0: So, what are some other things that you kind of notice about this album that you like about this album?
1: I think most of it is just like this album is just uh, because it is uh, so, so picturesque in its lyrics, and and it is like so ingrained in a time and a place for me that. Uh, for me it's just it's just that perfect you know feeling it it just emits this feeling like i I can sit here and feel like it's summertime and you know i'm 18 again and it's really transportive
0: yeah it transports you back to a time and place
1: yeah and uh yeah i mean i mean that's that i think it's just so it's such an easy listen again like looking through the songs and like if you toggle through the album or you listen to the album you're like this feels like just one big Song and the fact that it is only forty minutes, I think that that's the, that's the biggest thing. I think is it's such a tight album. They apparently had one cut from it uh, that was on the Japanese, but it doesn't feel like there's any fat that there couldn't have been any other songs because a lot of these songs bleed into each other too, and uh, yeah. it's it's just a it's about as perfect as you can get when it comes to crafting an album. I think and I think it is their masterpiece.
0: Absolutely, man. I, I like some of the drum flourishes that Mark O'Connell, that he brings to the table. Like some of the drums are kind of weird. I don't know if, if you if you can sort of imagine the the beginning of this uh, photograph as proof. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that one. Once they kick in, because you've kind of got that, that staccato guitar part, that clean part at the very beginning. But there's like a really intricate, interesting drum beat going behind it that is sort of bizarre. I think most conventional drummers probably would have played something different there. And he plays something kind of cool and kind of interesting and it kind of gives it a little bit of life and a little bit of personality.
1: I think he's a very underrated, consistent band member here that constantly is evolving and changing trying new things in all the albums. But this one, because it is so uh, guitar heavy, I think he gets lost a little bit because Fred mm-hmm. just comes out just guns a blazing. And I think uh, it's, it's hard not to just put those guitars... Front and center. But it is great. You know, like this is one I need to listen to uh, with good headphones on, too, because there is probably so many nuances in here. You know, there's a lot of strings in this and some piano and a lot of different background singers happening in here that I'm sure with a good pair of headphones, you could really, really dig your teeth into.
0: And the guitars kind of weave in and out. The guitars are always playing something different from one another. Mm-hmm which is cool. And I was listening to it with headphones yesterday, and that's one thing that I noticed, that all the guitars are kind of doing their own thing, but they they, they complement each other really well. And the production's not overly produced. It's not a major label release. It sounds more like more in-your-face, just guitar rock with catchy choruses and catchy melodies. But I like the subdued production on it. I don't think it would have been as a revisited album if Eric Valentine, the guy that did Louder Now, if he had done it. Because Louder Now sounds great and it sounds like a major label release. Like he did, he I think he did Good Charlotte before that record. He did a couple mm-hmm. of Good Charlotte records. Just very, very clean produced sounding pop punk style music. But I, I almost like the fact that Lou Giordano, he he was a little bit more restrained. He did the Atari's big record the year before. Mm. I would imagine the Atari's had a bigger budget. What's the album? So Long Astoria. That's the album he did. Oh, all right. Yeah, and he's done a lot of great records over the years. I know he did the first Color Fred record, and I'm not sure if he did the Terrible Things record or not, but I know Fred Mascherino, he's, he's gone back to him to do a couple things Great sounding record and it and it holds up. I think the recording still sounds great, even 16 years later.
1: It's, it's it's one of the, one of the best I think
0: I just want to talk about one more thing if you'll indulge sure. me we got to talk about taking back Sunday just as a live band and just a band in general like what more could you really want from a rock band <laughs> especially well, live you know like I feel like in a lot of ways Taking back Sunday should be much bigger than they are
1: yeah probably that's probably correct but but like I mentioned before
0: I think they're big in the underground and they have that cult following but I feel like they should be cult play sized I feel like they should be like playing arenas like bon jovi did and maybe that's how a lot of bands i feel like a lot of bands should be doing that and maybe that's just you know product of the times pop music is just more popular country music is more popular but it's like in a rock band what more do you want
1: yeah i think this album was the one though that did skyrocket them that the people they're still like filled with their success right now i think you know they still play rather large venues compared to a lot of bands that from this time time frame you know they they constantly saw shows that they've uh pretty much consistently toward um but I think this Fred era was when I saw them the most. I probably saw four or five shows here in the these couple of years of Fred. You know, he had a lot of energy like especially compared to John Nolan. Like John does just kind of stand there a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But Fred and, and and Matt, I remember uh they were very energetic on stage they were jumping around they're running around it was like you could tell they were just having the time of their lives and i guess for fred you know from going from breaking pangea a band that never really exploded to this Matt you know to one of the biggest bands in the world at the time you know on their sophomore album playing you know twenty thousand plus shows i think for him it's like this is in his head this is my motley Crue moment right this is i have to run around on the stage and jump around and Give it a 200%. And, you know, Adam has always kind of been that way. But I think this was really like, you know, you're seeing early 20s Adam, you know, he's four, I think, in this album, 25 in this album. And he's just fully having the time of his life. And, and maybe part of that was like the head and you know, John and Sean had with Adam during this time that Adam wanted to kind of be a little bit crazier a little bit wilder a little bit a little bit of an asshole and fred indulged that i think and you can tell on stage like if you watch these live shows in this time they're insane and just a shit ton of fun and they get a little bit more theatrical i think in the latter now phase but where you want to be was just a real rock show and i think that's what made them special and that's what had me coming back for more and more because they integrated the crowd like no other band you know and uh and yeah i think i think i think they're one of the best live bands out there you know they like They just really captivate everybody's attention.
0: I agree. Yeah, and charisma is definitely the word. I mean, you watch Adam Lazara Mm -hmm. out on stage, and he is just a very charismatic... Command your attention like frontman, and I remember, I remember when he, when I first saw them, and they were like these really good-looking guys, and their band was exploding. I'm sure I was a little envious, a little jealous, but man, I just became such a fan after "Where You Want to Be" came out. Like that was really the record that hooked me. I liked, I liked songs on "Tell All Your Friends," but I didn't love the album as a whole. I, I kind of like understand the charm of it now that I'm a little bit older and over the last, you know, couple decades, but where you want to be really made me a fan and then I was like you I saw him live and I was just immediately hooked and I remember there were so many front men trying to emulate what Adam does and they could never quite get it and it was almost bordering on they were impersonating him Mm-hmm. some of these bands were really good in their own rights and eventually developed to their own personality but man i just i watch them anytime i get to see them live and i'm just like this is like quintessential fun rock band to go see live he's almost like the doors front man you know he's almost like a gym like he's that charismatic he's that he's that much fun to watch
1: yeah i agree he he is uh his charisma is you know second to, to maybe only like dave grohl
0: Foo fighters should probably take them on the road that'd be good
1: that'd be a fun show yeah
0: That'd be a good tour. I'd pay a lot of money to see that. Probably,
1: I think it would work too because Take Back Sunday, while, while they still play all these old songs that are a little bit more pop punk, screamo type of stuff, um, they've rounded the corner in the last like five six years to like keeping the same style of like songwriting while like becoming a little bit a lot more grown up and, and a little bit more in that uh, Springsteen kind of vibe, Americana.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely a little bit more of like that classic timeless rock and i think that was by design they were trying to go that route yeah well cool man i really appreciate you being my first guest on this music podcast this little endeavor i have i don't think i mentioned at the beginning of the show but adam owns a local theater here in kansas city and we've known each other for what like a little over a decade
1: yeah a long a long amount of time probably more than that i would say but yeah in that time frame
0: yeah man I just I wanted to thank you for always being a friend and a good confidant to talk about music with it's been fun and going shows hopefully we can go to shows again soon sometime that'd be that'd yeah. be neat <laughs> <laughs> and yeah man you have any last words you want to leave with the listeners you want to plug anything
1: no I don't think so this was, this was a lot of fun revisiting this album and taking a deeper dive into it than I've done before so yeah it was great
0: radical man well thanks for doing it Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review. A five-star review would be incredible. I'd really appreciate it. Wherever you listen to podcasts, another thing you could do would be to share this podcast with a friend. Anyone who enjoys this type of music or personal development in general. All right, I hope you're having a wonderful day. Hopefully, you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. Take care, and I'll talk to you later.
1: Yeah. So, i